Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Anoush. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. In this week's podcast, we talk about the fallout from Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson's scandals. The sexual harassment allegations in Westminster. What's happening with Brexit. And why does no one care about the Paradise Papers? Well, it's been another busy week. I'm joined by Anoush Akkadian because Stephen is off in his fur-lined air-conditioned box, whatever it is that he does. Um, he was tweeting southeastern trains about trains yesterday, so I'm guessing he's gone somewhere on a train. I think it's been an extraordinary week. There was a great tweet by Hugo Rifkin of the Times saying that an ordinary, like there are so many scandals happening at the same time that actually no, everyone's kind of surviving them, right? It's like the three stooges all trying to get through a door together. So to recap, what have we got? We've got Boris Johnson went in front of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and said that Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was training journalists in Iran. She says she was on a family holiday, so she's now been arrested essentially for spying, and they're now saying that counts as evidence she was a propagandist. He's now said he could have been clearer. Could have been clearer. (laughs) Meanwhile, somebody who, the other way around, claims that they were on a private family holiday is Priti Patel, the International Development Secretary, except she managed to squeeze in, I think, about, what, like a dozen meetings with people, including Benjamin Netanyahu. And also managed to promise that British aid money would go to the Israeli Defence Force in the Golan Heights in its occupation there. And had to be gently told by some poor bugger at the Foreign <laughs> Office that Britain doesn't recognise Israel's occupation of the Golan Heights and therefore probably we can't give them any money. Yeah. And all of that happens against the kind of background of the fact that the sort of the sleaze and sexual harassment and all those kind of allegations are kind of dribbling on. Do you feel like anybody's actually going to go or anything's going to... Is anything going to come out of any of this, do you think? So far, it doesn't look like it. Um, Everyone's saying that Theresa May is so weak that she can't actually sack any of these ministers who are making such terrible mistakes. But I think the Priti Patel thing, I think there's still mileage for Theresa May to be able to sack her because... 
this information about her having a meeting with officials about giving them aid money takes it a bit further than just having some sort of meetings that she shouldn't have scheduled. So I think yeah. she, she is under a, a lot of pressure to look into whether or not she's broken the minister. I mean, that explicitly rates that. to her. I wouldn't be surprised if she went. Also, she's a diffid secretary, which is not sort of, it's not the same as appointing a new defence secretary for the Tories, at least. They don't really see it as a sort of stepping stone to higher office. They see it more as a demotion. So it wouldn't cause as much bitterness as Gavin Williamson's promotion last week, I think. I think that's definitely true. But I also think that it is a big Brexiteer article of faith. It's sort of swirled in into the foreign aid. We're giving it all to India when they've got a space program and to Ethiopian girl yeah. groups. And there were lots of, you know, there was lots of those leaks when she first kind of came in about, which felt like pitch rolling for cutting the aid budget. As, a, you know, the, the idea that actually the aid budget can be given to the Israeli army because, you know, bless them, they're really down to their last few Yeah, true. Exactly. Coppers. If anyone needs aid, it's not Israel. I think even Brexiteers who hate the fact that diffidies even exists would probably agree with that. But that's what I mean. But they won't want some, as they see it, wishy-washy, pinko, bleeding heart, you know, who'll be <coughs> spending, you know, probably won't even spend it on a big yacht like we know really that's where money should be spent on. Yeah, that's, that's true. And it, and it does does make the job much harder for Theresa May because Pretty Patel is probably one of the firmest Brexiteer believers in the cabinet. So it's difficult to get rid of her for that reason as well. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if she went, but I'd be surprised if, if there were any other people who were sacked from the cabinet for the sexual misconduct allegations and also Boris yeah I I mean I just (laughs) yes exactly a pound in the Boris jar for you I just think that and I can say it in the secrecy of the podcast because it's very uh, kind of unchivalrous thing to say that you know the Tories talk a lot about meritocracy you know you mustn't promote people because who they are and diversity and I think there's an astonishing affirmative action program that has gone on in the Tory party for Brexiteers, right? Where people who are, (laughs) let's be honest with you, not really much cop have been pushed forward, particularly women, right? And this is the kind of, this is the thing that I say, it's not very chivalrous of me to say so. Mm. But I think there are a lot of essentially the same man who is a Brexiteer who know that they, for cosmetic reasons, they can't be seen to be a bunch of all of the same man. So they've kind of had a series of, of kind of front women who have perhaps been pushed forward Forward in a way that their talents wouldn't necessarily yeah. people like Andrea Leadsom and yeah. I mean Patel. funny you should say Andrea yeah, Leadsom not, yes, not yes. known for being particularly impressive ministers by their officials have definitely stayed in, in the positions that they've been in and also Liz Truss is sort of a secret Brexiteer isn't she is she yeah so I think she's another version of that not particularly impressive She's got very strong views about pork markets. Yeah, she does. (laughs) That much I know. But I just think that's... and, And you definitely see it when you kind of come to think about the fact that if Theresa May were to kind of grow a pair and sack some of these people she would have to replace them with brexiteers i think that that is very much yeah the kind exactly of and, and look at the ones left over i mean we think that we don't have very impressive people in high positions who have brexity views look at the ones who are left over on the back benches it really is the scrapings the, yeah the scraping scratchings yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, for our listeners you might not know this well i don't know why you would know this unless you've been coming into our office at night anusha's been steadily working her way through an advent calendar of pork scratchings yeah yeah how many bags opening did... up pork markets exactly throughout the office <laughs> how many bags did you eat before you had to throw them out to the, the office table <laughs> i think i only had about eight which is quite a lot <laughs> i was starting to feel sick so i just yeah yeah fair enough i haven't even opened the gin advent calendar yet but <laughs> i think bad. this this week might be yeah this week might be the one that drives me to it i think it's really astonishing and actually i was going to bring this up and you ask us but we might as well talk about it now about the definition of a resigning offense and how that's changed funnily enough i've just been writing my everyone can look forward to my christmas piece about uh, the musical hamilton my love, uh, in which a big 
plot point about that is the fact that uh, Alexander Hamilton has an affair with a woman called Maria Reynolds, who then blackmails him, well, her husband blackmails him, and his opponents find out about the money that's been going out of his account, and they say that, you, you know, your Treasury Secretary, you must have been embezzling government funds. So he has a genius idea to clear his name, which is, I will say, ah, I'll tell you who I was actually giving this money to, it was the woman I was sleeping with. And everyone goes, okay, so you didn't do the embezzling, but also you're an adulterer, so you can't now be president. And one of the really sad things is that uh, when Lin-Manuel Miranda hosted Saturday Night Live just before the election, it was just after the Access Hollywood tape came out, and he walked down this SNL hallway, stopped by a picture of Trump, and did the line from Hamilton, which is what Jefferson sings to Hamilton, which is, never gonna be president, no, never gonna be president. <laughs> um, of course, that was not true. He did become yeah. president, in fact, despite a, a dozen women accusing him of sexual assault. And I think it's really hard now to see what is a resigning offence and what isn't. I would absolutely have said that Pretty Patel's offence was a resigning offence. Yeah, but I think resigning offences and what is or not a resigning offence says more about the person who has the power to make people resign than the person who's done something wrong. So with Pretty Patel, any minister, any civil servant, any regular you know, person working at the Foreign Office or at DFID would be sacked for doing this. So she should, under normal circumstances, be sacked. But because Theresa May is in a weak position, both in terms of her government, in her cabinet and in parliament, it's more difficult for her to do so. Yeah, and a strong prime minister wouldn't have had to bring Liam Fox back into the cabinet yeah, after having exactly. washed out once, or wouldn't have had to... I mean, this is the sort of thing, isn't it? Uh, you know, Boris Johnson being in the cabinet is a kind of really interesting example of this, is that if he, if all of his previous verbal slip-ups that have embarrassed us abroad, that have had bad you know, effects for, for diplomats, that have made things harder for people working in, in, in country, you know, with, with human rights abuses, all of that wasn't enough to to keep him out of the cabinet, then it becomes very hard to argue, well, why is this one different? Yeah, exactly. So that wasn't enough to keep him out of the cabinet. And then when he was in the cabinet, he's made all of these interventions about public sector pay and Brexit that aren't really his remit. And he still hasn't been sacked for doing that. So you've got really, to think, though, it can be very vaguely interpreted what the ministerial code actually is. And it's just up to the prime minister to decide whether to investigate or not. So if the prime minister is in trouble or it's politically difficult they don't she doesn't have to instruct the independent advisor to investigate but don't you think it must be a bit like school and that if you're amber rudd or david liddington or one of the ones who's basically been no trouble you must just be thinking why do i you know like i've handed in all my homework on time yeah and surely the remainers want to be more trouble as well yeah but that which was always the kind of the thing that was a big dynamic in the last parliament was the fact that uh, the kind of boring sensible remainer liberal wing of the Tory party who were the kind of cameroons and osbornites were annoyed that you know your peter bones and your philip hollow and your kind of kind of proper blood curdling Brexiteers were just kind of wrecking everything and getting what they wanted by being awkward and you know why were they just kind of boring lobby fodder that did what they were told and what was the re- more importantly what was the reward for being loyal well maybe we are in the age of the rebel then because Jeremy Corbyn's proved that being difficult for decades can actually reap results and you have all of these sad people who were loyal for years under Ed Miliband and, and before who haven't yeah. really got the jobs that they wanted so maybe this is the age of the rebel what we've been saying is there's never been a better time for Amber Rudd to shave half her hair off get a nose <laughs> exactly. piercing and call Boris Johnson better a wanker <laughs> if you're listening Amber I think we'd all appreciate that ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now for a segment we like to call, what have you been writing about this week? So Anoush, tell me what you've been writing about this week. Um, I've been looking into the sexual harassment allegations in Westminster, which have been rumbling on, even though there's so many scandals that have sort of overshadowed it. The main thing really that everyone says is that Parliament just isn't set up to help the people who become victims of this kind of behaviour. So there's no real HR, there's no union representing MP staff or MPs. So well, that's the other thing, there's no, yeah, there's no you think about formal it, stuff for people who have been accused, right? And I, for whatever you might think, about the systemic problem it does seem deeply unfair that people can be accused and not told the accusations and be suspended over them yeah and find out through the press but actually what i meant by that was yes mps who are accused but also mps who are victims as well so there's just nothing helping people in parliament who who have these kind of complaints to make and each of the parties have their own procedures that aren't independent so there's no one there who's not a party appointee to sort of decide whether or not there's been wrongdoing. So the party leaders met together in this very awkward picture in the cabinet room with Theresa May sitting opposite Jeremy Corbyn to try and sort out how they're going to introduce a new system to to get people to have their grievances taken seriously. They didn't last time there was this bullying scandal in 2014. Mm. They just introduced a hotline that no one uses and everyone thinks is rubbish. So let's hope that this time they actually do come up with something that's robust. I think one of the interesting things is how much the the culture, I know it's still got a huge amount of change to do, but it has already changed a lot. I think it was really fascinating. The Guardian's former political editor, Michael White, came out saying, actually, these young women are predatory, you know, because they prey yeah. on, the, on the vanity of these old men to get stories out of them. And you're like, well, it, well it's a view. But last, I can't remember the last time he, he said something similarly kind of silly. Actually, the whole like generation of women who were just basically the gener- you know, 20 years younger than him, who are now very senior, were just like, come, come, on, come now, Michael. Yeah. Let's not be so... And then there are definitely more women in senior positions even though I think there's only one paper with a female political no it's two papers with female political editor as far as I know the Guardian's got a job share and the Sunday Express has uh, a female political editor but there are also more what I kind of think of as you know new men right in the in the lobby and in the commons generally there are lots of men who actually care a huge amount about child care and about paternity you know and what were considered to be at one point you know very very fringe women's issues which is actually that has changed the culture as well yeah there were a lot of young labor new labor mps male mps who came out saying you know i don't understand what possibly could have been different about the culture 15 years ago that means that your behavior then is acceptable now to stay in your job and there was a really nice site this week for the statement by alistair burt of the foreign office about pretty because pretty patel is now in the air uh, as we're recording this on <laughs> yes. her way to Africa. I don't know, I can't remember which country. The front bench for Labour had Kate Osamore, who's the shadow differed, making the statement. Dawn Butler, who's Minister for, I think, Diverse Community. I can't remember exactly what it's called now, that role, the equalities yeah. role. And um, Diane Abbott. So for the, I imagine seeing that even five years ago, you know, having three black women on the, on the front bench. Yeah, that's very true. There is some, some reason for optimism. I interviewed this woman who uh, is called Barbara Hosking. She's 91 and she worked for Harold Wilson and a couple of other prime ministers in the civil service. And she was saying, yes, you know, there's all these terrible stories coming up. But actually now, when you see a picture of a, lineup of only men on a committee or in the commons it looks unusual and she was like simply that fact that people will point it out shows that 
quite a lot has changed. Yeah, yeah. You go back to the 97 election and I think you saw Kate Aidy reporting from somewhere and Shirley Williams kind of came on to do a Vox Pop. But apart from that, it was the sausage fest to end all yeah. sausage fest. And that was, I mean, yeah. And again, that was, you know, whatever it was, 101 uh, New Labour female MPs just swept in. So... That's why I'm trying to cling to my silver linings. Yeah, um, so reasons to be optimistic, but now I'm going to ask you about Brexit, which is, ah, I, I assume, no, different. No, 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 good, no, good. Oh. There are reasons to be optimistic about Brexit. I'll stop remoning. Yeah, well, no, this is the really funny thing. So I've been talking to people for the column this week, and one thing that came up was the idea that we've cocked it up so badly by being unprepared that actually we might have to take an off-the-shelf deal just to avoid no deal. So what somebody said, one of the think tanks said to me is like, you know, no deal essentially, they, they think, you know, means no Brexit because it would be so catastrophic. There's not a commons majority for, for, for signing up to that. Northern Ireland's economy is very dependent on agriculture. Are they really going to sign up to like 40% tariffs on beef? It would absolutely cripple already a, a part of the UK that's got quite you know poor productivity, mm-hmm. low wages. So they were saying that that's, that's a really strong incentive to avoid no deal. It's actually a real fear that you wouldn't get that through the commons. And then the second thing is, yeah, we've, we've, we've sort of fussed about and had our election and shilly-shallied and, and, and this idea of a kind of super bespoke deal then becomes really, really hard to see. So what um, Jonathan Liss from British Influence said was he thinks that uh, all the way down the line, basically what's happened is that the government has caught up with kind of expert opinions. They said there won't be a transition deal. And then they went, yeah, there might be a transition deal. <laughs> um, or we won't pay any money into the EU budget after we leave. And then they're like, we will pay some billions, maybe many billions. <laughs> so he said, you know, now where the expert opinion is, is that we need to kick on Article 50 and have more time to negotiate. We can't possibly do this by essentially October next year, which is when you then need to start the ratification process. So he was like, I am strangely, weirdly optimistic that actually we might just have more, you know, this process might go on longer and therefore we probably would hope then would get a better outcome than then, than some kind of horrible crash out next year. That's interesting. That uh, Maybe the Brexiteers know that as well, because maybe that's why they're so obsessed with, uh, you know, they've gone from thinking that we can get a good deal to wanting a no deal almost. And maybe so that maybe they can smell it in the air that we might take one off the peg. Yeah, well, one of the things that um, Anon Menon, who's a professor at King's College London and a member of UK and the Changing Europe said, was actually the calculation is really interesting about the other countries. So he said, in a way, you know, Ireland m- would probably prefer that we had no deal that was Britain's fault than a bad deal that the EU had signed up to. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So essentially, if there's going to be a hard border is going to come back and all of that 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 brings with it, they would rather it be someone else's fault than they can be, and they can dump all the blame on the British, than they can be seen to signing up to something that is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be that Brexit might be less of a disaster than we thought, simply because the people who wanted to negotiate a hard, complicated, bespoke deal aren't any good at that and didn't plan for it and didn't sufficiently plan for it exactly so yeah well let's so the essay crisis once more wins Uh, out exactly (laughs) it turns out just writing over and over again please (laughs) let us be a bit like norway but give us something on immigration might maybe might even come off And now for a segment we like to call You Ask Us. Yes. See, you get a level of enthusiasm from me that I never <laughs> managed to coax out of Stephen. So the Paradise Papers are all over the BBC, all over the Guardian, the Times have been doing them as well. And yet, as so often happens, I 
don't care, Anoush. Why? Well, I don't think this is unusual because I've had quite a few readers tweeting saying, you know, why doesn't anyone care about the, the Paradise Papers? Why isn't anyone doing anything about it? And then on our side, I guess journalists find it quite quite dull because we've seen these kind of stories over and over again and nothing ever comes out of it. And that's because there's not actually that much law breaking going on, even if there is moral wrongdoing and, you know, lying and that kind of those kind of shenanigans. No one's actually breaking the law. So until until someone actually puts a plan together to to genuinely look at tax reform, which is quite boring in itself, yeah, I mean, None of I this think, stuff is really going to stick. I think they're really useful stories because they do, you know, certainly they just they bring stuff out into you know sunlight, which is a great disinfectant. So it is really useful to know. Well, actually, this is how pension funds operate. We all kind of yeah. see, like you know the Queen and her tiny minuscule investment in Bright House, which is a kind of not exactly a payday lender, but like a higher purchase company, which is relatively controversial because of its high interest rates. The, the, the Duke of Westminster, who is now maybe Britain's most eligible man, just putting it out there. <laughs> he's 26. He's worth several billion. And one of the reasons he's worth several billion is that, you know, he's got association with some of these schemes very legally. But there are loads and loads of office blocks in central London that will be rented from that, right? We've created this financial system with enormous complexity that you can't often see where the end point of it is. Pension schemes, landlords, all of this kind of stuff. So it is a it is a web I mean, I, you know, my strong feeling is that the Liam Fox story, had there not been a kind of suggestion of shenanigans about it, which is something that people can intuitively grasp, it would have been a lot harder for him it would have, to make him resign, right? Mm. And I think the same thing is true with, with tax. When it's like, here is a kind of enormous rotten system, that's harder to care about than here is a person who has done a bad thing that you can have a kind of an opinion on. Exactly, yeah. You can blame the system. And also what you were saying about pensions is some people can legitimately say, I did not know where, where some of my money was going. And so, and, and people understand that because they have the same thing. Yeah. Uh, also, there is a bit of a temptation when people do these big document dump where they make the first several parts of the story about how hard they've worked. Yeah, I was reading, I, um, I've been filling in for Stephen this week doing his morning email and I was reading the first BBC story of the day on the Paradise Papers and the first two paragraphs were which journalists have these papers and... and In 3,000 documents the over the night. And like, where they got the... them from. And if that's the top line... Yeah then it's not interesting news. Yeah, I scream. Which is why, I'm sure that some of our listeners will spit to hear this, but which is why you always read the Daily Mail knockoff of these stories, because they yeah, go, exactly, the Queen always, has done what? They always what? work out that David Cameron's done something. Exactly, or, the Mrs. Yeah. Brown's boy stars have done what? <laughs> and then you're kind of like, all right, okay, yes, there is something worse than yeah. that chat. Actually, I quite like the Mrs. Brown sh- chat show that she used to do on you I mean, love Mrs. Brown's boys. I, I, <laughs> me and Michael Gove were the lone defenders <laughs> yeah. in the British political establishment of Mrs. Brown's boys. It's very subversive in its own way, Anish. You don't understand. Yeah, I think that's the trouble is that these stories always need kind of humanising. Yeah. Um, and, and actually writing great journalism about systems is just really hard. It's really difficult. But one thing I would say is that I think we're in a slightly different context now in Britain than we were when the Panama Papers came out last year, when really there weren't any ramifications at all, even though our own Prime Minister was implicated. Now, people seem to care more about inequality, like look at Jeremy Corbyn's achievements in the election, for example. And there are Tories who question sort of the prudence of austerity as well. So we're living in a slightly different context where people are more attuned to to the unfairness of society. Yeah, and they do stuff like this does tell you you're not a mad conspiracy theorist. Exactly. To think that there is something kind of deeply rigged against 
you know, a sort of average earner who pays payers you earn tax on their income versus somebody who's just got the ability to move stuff around, to use holding companies, to use shell companies, to whatever the thing that Bono did, which is like he bought a shopping centre in Lithuania <laughs> through a company that was held in... Malta. Malta. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just so far out of the realms of normal... I mean, a, and I've it never, doesn't make any sense, does I've it? never bought a shopping centre even in Britain, yeah. let alone in Lithuania. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, you kind of think, well, these people are living completely different lives to, to us. Yeah. And that's a very powerful thing for politics. And we need the taxes spent on on us more than they need to screw all their money away yeah so if you're listening bono <laughs> you want to send a, a crisp 20 pound note to the new statesman office then we'll ensure it's spent on something properly good You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Anusha Kalian. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Why not listen to one of our other podcasts, Skylines, The Back Half, or Seriously? Search for them all on your favourite podcast provider of choice. <laughs>